Uh, I'll keep this uh, nice and informal. Um, I really focus on individual player development, as you know. So I'm happy to kind of just have, I have some questions, but I'm happy to sort of see where the conversation goes. It's more of a casual chat. Uh, I think they involve the best and the brightest, you know, certainly one of those in that, in that space. So you have a little chat. It, does, it doesn't matter if it stays in football. It can go other, other directions as well. I think, um, it's, I think it's important for us to look at our sports to share ideas and so, and so forth. I see a lot of positive things in our sports that maybe football can use. And my main priorities are trying to uh, obviously help young players over here to try to pursue their pathway, potentially going across to England. Uh, I do work for Fleetwood Town Football Club in England. So uh, I have a pathway in place for that. So the players are good enough. Obviously, we try to get them across to the UK to experience that uh, in terms of um, training and playing and hopefully uh, getting picked up to stay longer. Uh, we do have an educational component as well, which is important to me. I think it's important because obviously numbers coming out of the UK are telling us that um, even other sports as well, it's a very low percentage actually make it through that very, very highest level. But not to say people can't enjoy their careers uh, and combine education with that and uh, have very productive and enjoyable life, you know, lifestyles as well. So that's kind of where I'm coming at. So um, we'll get started. Is that okay? Yeah. I mean, keep it, keep it brief and keep it uh, just, just casual and, and have, have a chat basically. Okay. Absolutely. And I'm in your hands, your vision. Yeah, great stuff. Well, thanks Tom for joining today. Uh, obviously we've kept in contact the last, uh, last couple of years during COVID and we've both got through it, which is, which is ideal. So uh, <laughs> happy to have you on today. I know you've done some great work uh, right now. You've had uh, some great experiences in the EPL with uh, professional football. You've also had some great experiences working with individual athletes as part of team GB. And I want to catch up with you a little bit and see you, where you're out with that kind of work. I know you do some consulting as well. Uh, my focus is on individual player development. So maybe we can spend a little more time around that area, but happy to happy to go where the conversation goes. Um, just for our readers, sorry, our, our, our listeners, I just had 15 plus years in the high performance space. Um, maybe have you sort of uh, outline a little bit about your, your journey to date and what your current work, work a current work a week for you look like. Well, wow, that's a, how long have we got? Ian? <laughs> yeah, as, as long as you're available. <laughs> no, first of all, first of all, great to see you. And thanks very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with you. And um, I mean, it's, it's always wonderful to have these conversations because it offers some um, perspective through reflection and um, it's a constant learning journey. I mean, my, my personal journey was uh, I was a, I'm a failed player, really. I didn't make it through the academy system at Cambridge United Football Club. I was released and, and never made it into the senior realms. And um, I remember back then, I mean, the real reason I didn't make it is that I simply wasn't good enough, you know. Uh, but I had a wonderful attitude and I really feel like I maximized the talent that I did have. But then I saw players around me, you know, teammates often with um, ability levels that were much higher than mine, you know, but they didn't seem to have the right attitude and they too didn't make it. And I was curious about that because I was thinking, you know, way back when, when sports psychology wasn't really a thing, I wonder if this is able, I wonder if we can help players improve this area of their game, this mental and emotional capacity to respond to challenges, to focus under pressure, to stay motivated and so on and so forth. And um, so I, I've carried on playing, I, I, not, not to a professional level, but in college level and university level and um, uh, and pretty high standard, but I was, I fell in love with coaching and um uh, really, I did all my badges down in Bournemouth at Bournemouth University. I chose to study a course called uh, Sports Psychology and Coaching Sciences, which is the combination of the science of psychology and the practically applied element of, of coaching. And uh, I didn't leave with the best results from university. I didn't get a first like some of my friends. And um, the reason for that is that, you know, I guess in, in the, I had a choice, a decision to make at that time when I was going through my undergraduate, which was I can be out on the field uh, and I had an opportunity to coach at the center of excellence uh, for AFC Bournemouth to, and I remember like yesterday I was in my very first experience with the little under, under sevens, under eights or U7s, U8s as, as it's known. Um, right. And, you know, they were just like sponges. They loved the game. I fell in love with coaching. I fell in love with the idea of being out on the grass and, and subsequently did all my badges, went up to UA4A level here in, in England. And um, long story short, did, left with a 2-1, uh, but, but a lot of practically applied experiences and, and um, had a great opportunity to work with ASC Bournemouth and their first team, some, some members of their senior team there. And, you know, very quickly, actually, 
after leaving university, it must have been about six months, um, I was working for AFC Bournemouth, but then had a quick opportunity. I received an invitation to to come to Birmingham City in the Midlands when they were in the English Premier League under Alex McLeish at the time. Right. To do some work with the First Team in Academy. And then it, it's really always been a combination of coaching and psychology for me. Um, even when I did my master's and applied uh, sport and exercise psychology and then subsequently the professional doctorate in, in high performance psychology, it's I've really always been on the coaching side of practitioner. And I really yeah. like to say there's a phrase that Bill Beswick, who's a, a good friend and colleague and mentor of mine, and he says, um, well, the, you know, the role of the sports psych, the performance psych is not to be a shrink. It's to be a stretch. We stretch right. performance. You know, this is about maximizing performance, being the very best that you can be. And I think one of the things that that probably has, and I think psychologists in general need to take ownership of this in professional sport. It's not just about when you have a problem. It's, you don't go and see a psychologist. And, and that doesn't mean that you're weak either. It's the greatest show of courage and, and strength to really work on self, to study and become aware of your own mental and emotional processes to maximize performance. And so for the last 15 years, that's been my journey. I've been doing that in high performance sport in with British Swimming and Team GB in the Olympic Games this summer. And um, my last full-time role was in football was with Aston Villa uh, as head of performance psychology and, and, and um, culture. Uh, working with the senior executives, the first team manager, players, team, etc. Uh, but now I, I have my own company. I left Aston Villa and um, really am an independent consultant working across multiple different elite sports with individuals, teams, coaches, managers, and occasionally in business, blue chip corporations and, and education as well. So it's a, it's a wonderfully diverse variety of, of work that I have. And, and I love it because every day is a new challenge and, um, every day I'm learning even more. That's great. That's great. Um, actually, I remember met, meeting uh, Bill Beswick back in early 2000s. Actually, I was across at, at Millsborough Football Club. Uh, I had a group across there. Bill's a wonderful man and very passionate about what he does. I think you have a similar trait to that. And obviously, you've obviously been around him. He's probably picked up a little bit. Um, I think looking at your work from my perspective, obviously over in Canada, I sort of see yourself as being one of the pioneers in terms of adding that sports psychology part to the grass. I mean, a lot of People seem to work in that space, but it's, it seems to be they're delivering a lot of that work via classroom or maybe some other avenue, whereas you seem to kind of take that to the grass. And I guess because you've got your FAA license as well, it probably helps you a lot in terms of probably gaining um, a bit of trust from the players, that'd be fair to say? Most definitely. It's credibility, you know, that's, and that's really, I knew that I was never going to be a first team manager. Um, uh, and the reason I did my badges is because I could understand, so I could understand the, the culture the the language the, the temperature of the environment the stresses that the coaches are facing the decisions they have to make um but also how to manage players and be in that uh, arena and i think that it, it gains a credibility and rightly so the UEFA is as you know um a prestigious award it's not easy to get uh, uh but more than that I, I believe that all of us as coaches to a degree must have um, an element of uh, understanding and applied focus of psychology in action. To a degree, we're all practical psychologists in our own right as coaches. I think to be a, the best, one of the questions I used to ask myself is what makes the best coach? And of course, when you get down to it, you understand fundamentally, do you know what you're talking about? That's the credibility, the training. You can't fake that, right? You have to yeah. understand the game and have a, a, a foundation of knowledge. But then as you go further, into that question, I found again and again when I studied, I've been very privileged to have some great head coaches around me, you know, West Brom, Aston Villa, Birmingham City, AFC Bournemouth, and on and on and on, Brentford. And what I realize is there is something above the, the X's and the O's. There's something above strategy, which defines performance at the highest level. And to a degree, that is really about some coaches call it man management, others call it leadership. But fundamentally at the heart of that lies a coach's capacity to, to see the world through the player's eyes, to understand them as individual personalities, to respond to those needs, and then to connect on a human level, to establish effective relationships, 
you know, there's a wonderful phrase by Maya Angelou and it goes like this. I'm sure you know it. I don't care how much you know until I know how much you care. Yeah, I've heard that. It's, yeah, it's, it's excellent, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. You know, it really, and for me, that, that is, has to be a, a solid foundation of a philosophy of a, of a coach who wants to be at the highest level. But to get back to the, the answer, yes, absolutely. It's applied work. So things like visualization, positive self-talk, pre-performance routines, you know, progressive muscular relaxation, all of these mental skills training strategies are applied on the pitch with the players that I work with. So it isn't something that we talk about doing. We, I believe in immersive practice. We get inside of it and try it on and repeat it because, you know, mental and emotional traits like confidence, self-belief, these are skills. These are mental muscles that can improve with practice. Right. So practicing it on the pitch is often the best way to um, help the player to practice consistently and consciously and specifically um, in, in certain situations, be that a striker in front of goal. We run visualization sets. We recreate the same sort of situations that take place on match day. It's not rocket science. It's yeah. just simply understanding the mental and emotional processes that underpin a lot of high performance and sharpening them up and practicing them every day. Good stuff. Yeah, I think we all, we all we always kind of underappreciate the stress that a lot of these top athletes are under. I mean, for example, you're playing in front of 50,000 people every week. It's a lot of stress. And how do you handle that? Always a fair amount of criticism around the football environment. Or it could be fans, could be your coaching staff, whatever. I mean, players have to live with that almost day in, day out, don't they? I mean, same with swimmers, same with boxers, same with other sports as well. There's a lot of pressure in these young people. I mean, they're very young people typically and really maybe haven't developed their own social skills um, fully yet and still on a journey, a very, you know, very new journey still. So how do you kind of provide those kind of young people with those kind of strategies or tool set? I guess a tool set to kind of help them manage that. Yeah, sure. I mean, one of my favorite authors and speakers, he's passed on now, but Dr. Wayne Dyer has a wonderful uh, phrase. He says, um, there is no pressure in the world. There's no anxiety in the world. There are only people and we could this apply this to sport, you know, people, teams, coaches, managers, players, thinking anxiously, thinking stressful thoughts. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of the work is about understanding the words and the story that we create for ourselves. Yeah. And something that I've learned from the very best in the world, you know, the likes of Adam Peaty, for example, who's a ferocious champion. He's a relentless individual he he really thrives in so-called pressurized situations and pressure to him is a privilege it's it's a wonderful positive opportunity if he feels that sense of pressure that's a sign that he's getting ready to be at his best and that all of his preparation to this point now has the potential to be released unleashed in this arena in front of thousands of fans you know so that's about the story that he tells himself so self-talk you know death and life is in the tongue the words that we choose to use about ourselves and the world that we live in and the performances that we prepare for you know i'm either my greatest uh, ally or i can be my worst enemy Correct. yeah definitely and that that choice is mine yeah but you know after we get past that stage then of course there are you know very simple things that can change emotional state Really, it comes down to three three main things that I kind of work on a lot with most of the athletes, which is about just being conscious, present in the moment, being rather than thinking about doing. And that we can, you know, most of it comes down to things like being using breath work, uh, breathing techniques right. to regulate emotion, uh, positive self-talk or self-talk instructional or inspirational self-talk, you know, um, and our physiology our body language, what we do physically to stay in state prior right. to perform. Yeah, that's great. I was actually quite, quite surprised recently. I spent, I was telling you, we're just actually coming out of lockdown again here. So I'd spent the last four or five weeks actually uh, working with some players one-on-one on Zoom calls and trying to help them a little bit with their individual learning plans. And it's a new concept for us. We're trying to implement it across the board. So still new terminology for a lot of young players to, to get their heads around it. But what I was finding was a common thread, thread through those discussions was when they were putting down notes about how to improve, a big thing was, I want to improve my level of anxiety, how I deal with that. So we talked about, 
we just spoke upon and touched upon it there was it's a choice how they deal with that, isn't it? It's a choice how they present that. And like you said, they can embrace that and say, it's a good thing because I'm ready to play. And obviously the higher up you go in the game, the more pressure there is, but there's also the more, most opportunity. So maybe it's a way of rephrasing that a little bit. And they were actually struggling a lot, a lot with that. And um, I think too, on top of that, young people have obviously been, been struggling a bit regarding the lockdowns on off lockdowns the last uh, year and a half, two years where, essentially the school's taken away from them plus for sports as well and how a lot of young players dealt with that through the last um uh year and a half two years i found on my end seeing a lot of people young people take more responsibility in terms of uh, we have zoom session in the basement i've given them a home learning plan that kind of and they're coming back to me and actually asking for more which is great so i've saw a lot of progress that way i know i've had a lot of negative things regarding covid and so forth but i've also seen a lot of positive things but this common trait kept coming through about I mean, I'm anxious. I made a mistake. I don't want to make a mistake. And I, I try to drill in a little bit, sort of like, why are you anxious about that? What's going to happen? And, and sometimes in training, I'll say to them, well, what's, what's happened? So what's going to happen today if you miss the goal? What's going to happen today if you miss that pass? What's, 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 the, what's the fear, right? right? So I think it's just an expectation. They've got to be on top and be their best all the time. Mm. And my way, I sort of deal with that a little bit and giving some advice, right or wrong, it was just saying, not everyone's on their top game every day. Not everyone's a 10 every day. I mean, Messi and Ronaldo make mistakes. How did they get there? They made lots of mistakes. Maybe they mm. made more mistakes than everybody else. Maybe that's why they're the best in the world. I try to think upon it as a process versus being a, actually a negative thing. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that's, that's kind tough of advice. If I was one of your players, I would really <laughs> benefit from hearing that at yeah. such a tender age. Yeah. Especially in a world where uh, in popular culture, in mainstream media, social media, it's instant gratification. It, it really is. It paints a picture of success, which is linear without any obstacles. And we know that any biographical history of the great performers in sport, business, music, art is littered with this turbulent and um, traumatic journey to the top. It's, there is, simply is no great achievement without significant setback. And right. that really is a powerful definition of of success, sustained effort in the face of setbacks, you know? Yeah, definitely. When, when you work with athletes uh, or players one-on-one, Tom, do you sort of set together as part of your work, putting together an individual plan for them? And how many athletes already have that in place? Or are you finding yourself kind of starting from scratch with that, that process with them? Yeah, it's a really great question. They all have individual uh, programs and profiles um, because each of them have different areas uh, psychologically emotionally personally to to work on um, and so that requires n- an ability to really adapt and respond to the individual needs just like we would technically tactically physically and uh, ascertain which mental skill strategies fit which individual needs and then they go away and a lot of it is practice away from the sessions that we have once uh, i've worked with them and yeah. i always say to athletes that the end goal is self-regulation. The end goal that is that they perform in the absence of me, right. you know, independently exactly. of me. That's what a great coach does, right? Yeah. If, if I'm coaching at the new Camp or Old Trafford or Anfield and there's, you know, 90,000 fans, 50,000 fans, if I, <laughs> if my team, you know, if anyone's ever been in a stadium like that, the players can hear relatively nothing from the sideline from the coach. Yeah. So you better. So if we start from the end backwards and we say to ourselves, what might be needed for an athlete to perform independently in the arena, in the absence of my input, well then self-regulation has to be the goal. So every practice that I do, every moment that I'm with them has got to be an opportunity at some level in some way, for them to demonstrate that skill in action. And that means that they will make mistakes in the absence of our feedback. And that means that we might lose matches because they're struggling through the, on the road to success. And that means that we might concede goals and we will lose the ball and that's okay. In fact, that's the point. (laughs) Exactly. That's that's the point. (laughs) Right. Part of the learning process, right? You can't really develop unless you've been in a situation and you put yourself in situations where you can potentially make it make an error right otherwise you're not really stretching yourself as we talked about before right 
Uh, how often do you stress um, reflection and also journaling, that kind of stuff, Tom, in terms of, like, again, taking self-management to a different, maybe a different level for some of these athletes? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, with many, many of them, Ian. Um, and sometimes if another form of journaling is uh, they, if they don't like to write, then I ask them to speak out into their phones and record their thoughts okay. um, or phone or record, video record. And oftentimes, you know, it acts as a cognitive catharsis, a releasing of all of those thoughts, an opportunity to rise above something called metacognition, meta meaning above cognition, meaning thought. So it's about thinking about the way we think. And oftentimes journaling, like you've said, there is it's a vital mental process because we discover things about our own thinking style that we otherwise might not have noticed. Right. Wow. Look how negative I'm being about myself in this situation. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize that I doubt myself so much. Wow. I really think that my thought process needs to change. If I, I really have to have better expectations to see the world in a better way, what's the good thing about this situation rather than so journaling is a wonderful way to check our thinking, to check and challenge self, to reflect back on the way that we have perceived things in in life day to day because very often times you know we don't see the world as it is we see it as we are right we you know we see right. you know and it's not the things that happen to us in performances in training results outcomes setbacks it's not the things that happen to us that cause us the trouble it's the meaning that we attach it's the story that we tell correct that, that the purpose that we make of the experience you know, that is, that's the thing. So a lot of the work is about uh, a greater level of self-awareness. Um, and if we can, if we can just shift uh, and help, journaling can be a wonderful way to reflect over performance. Yeah. I've often been intrigued by that. When I, I work with my own players, I've, I've kind of struggled with myself as a coach a little bit. When I call players in and we're reflecting upon uh, maybe activity, I'll say to them, how do you think it went? And the first thing players go to is a negative, right? So I was trying to flip it a little bit and saying, well, you know, give me one thing, first of all, was good about it. Give me a second thing was good about it. Give me a third thing was good about it. And I've told them as well, and I find this for players, when you actually give them a chance to talk about things, they, are, they have more knowledge than they believe they, they do themselves. And I find uh, particularly in culture, a little bit is not really for stepping forward and, and vocalizing things and being vocal about things. Belfast, no problem. Believe me, <laughs> I mean, I'm from that, that, part, that part of the world. No one has any problem telling exactly how you think. But I find, <laughs> I find in Canada, it's a little bit different. A little bit different. Um, and I've had to adjust myself as a coach to try to pull that almost out of players a little bit more. And the group I have are getting more used to me challenging a little bit on that. And we've had some uh, coaches from EPL come on and have actually never had, had the players present to them. They're getting comfortable with that. Any any uh, strategies for for coaches, I guess, too, in terms of helping players get the confidence to talk about things. And, and I guess part is being making them feel in a, a safe space to do that. Would that be correct? Absolutely. 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 100% huge advocate of, of, of what you said of, of empowerment through collaboration of, of self-discovery and, and learning to get to self-regulation. I mean, and maybe that's too technical, the terms I'm using there, but essentially, you know, it can be as simple as this in a practice after 10 minutes, of, of a practice, you may pause the session as a coach and ask the players to go together in two groups, three groups, however many players you've got, separate them up into evenly, even numbers of groups and say, right, you've got two minutes, discuss how the practice is going, give me three things that you think or two things that are going well, one thing that we might need to do to be better, off, off you go. And then remove yourself as a coach from the social interactions. Give the players the space and time to process and communicate and collaborate and speak. You see, it's the habitual process. It's the habits that we create in training for them in the environment, in the culture. If you walk away, what you're saying subliminally to the players, the hidden message in that is, I trust you. You've got the knowledge. I respect you to come together. And actually, you can teach me as a coach. This is an ampler, it's a reciprocal process of learning. I don't have all the answers as a coach. 
then when they come back from that discussion, allow them to share in groups. Um, very often I would do this. In fact, uh, I remember, first of all, when I got to Birmingham City in the academy, there was this huge, great big barrier between the parents and the players. And the academy manager would tell me, we've got a problem with the culture. The parents, they, they're always trying to butt in. They, they, they just need to stay behind that barrier and just listen, know their place and listen, right? right. And I would say to them, you know, well, maybe, maybe, we could do, maybe we could build a better connection. So I asked the parents to, at the end of the debrief to come in and uh, listen to the debrief that the players would give. The parents weren't allowed to say anything, but they could listen. And right. it, joined, it joined up this collective sense of collaboration, you know. But coaches can work on things like the, the match, the, the, team, the team brief before the game. Why does it have to be the coach to give that? Why can't that be shared with all the players amongst the dressing room over a period of six weeks? And, you know, to, and inevitably, there'll be players that love to get up and speak about the team. But there'll also be players that, that really really that's outside of their comfort zone right yeah and but and and so working together to get through those it builds social confidence and what about the halftime team talk why does that have to be always coach delivered why can't that be players delivering it but you know etc etc and the match debrief after the game what about the analysis what what if we gave the players more of a platform to express their own reflections and the coach was just played the role of listener. Yeah. I wonder what would happen to a level of a player's social confidence, self-belief, game understanding. And, you know, the coach would also learn much more about how much the player truly understands if they listen. Alex Ferguson said something wonderful in his book, Leading, says, um, God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. Great right. coaches listen twice as much as they speak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. That. Yeah, I remember that quote. It's very, very good. Yeah. My wife also says that to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I get that as well. <laughs> Quite a bit of fact. <laughs> um, in fact, I, actually, I was on a conference um, a few weeks ago, actually, and actually um, one of the clubs in England, Wimbledon, um, I've actually started a process now in the academy where they actually go to games with no coach. So the players are actually going to the games themselves coachless. There's no coach involved. They pick the team, they make the changes, they do the strategy, etc. They have the chats amongst themselves. I thought it was a really, really interesting way of looking at things. And I was back at Wolves about five, six years ago in their academy program. And at the time, the players were starting to deliver sessions, you know, ages 12 and above. They were actually putting together training sessions themselves one, once, one time a week. And I think the beginning of the process was uh, the players had a hard time delivering that themselves, having the comps to do that, what to work on. So I think the staff went off and made some, some sessions together from, you know, uh, print-ups of sessions they can maybe use. And through time, what they find was the coaches staff were able to stand back and just kind of absorb. And if they wanted some help, the players could walk across and get some help. They didn't. They wanted to be more confident and go forward. But I thought that was an interesting process as well. And something I've tried over in Canada to sort of get players a little more out of the comfort zone, a little more taking ownership, a little more way of thinking about Okay, how, if I have to work out how to deliver a session, then obviously you're going to be have to understand the game a little better. You have to understand the rules a little better and what you're trying to achieve. But more importantly, how do you interact with your teammates? How do you talk to your teammates in such a way that, that they'll work if you're not working together with them versus I'm going to be against them or maybe in conflict? Yeah, sorry, you just dipped out there a second, Ian. I sorry. didn't hear the last part of that. Yeah, question. last part. I think it's like an excellent way to get players to get used to working together. Um, obviously, if you're you have it delivered in front of your peers, no, no greater pressure, I guess, and no good test than that. If you can communicate something to your peers and get them working together on something, that's going to, it's a bit of teamwork, isn't it? That's the end of, end of the day. That's, that's the game. Um, as opposed to sort of have, like you mentioned, just have the coach sort of direct a one-way conversation to players, which really is not really achieving much, is it? Absolutely not. No. Um, and just like a practice, you know, Ian, um, a, co a good coach always have a, uh, has a practice to um, evolve the practice, to take it up one level if, if the players get it quickly. You know, it's a, that progression is always in your mind, right? Second progression, third progression, fourth progression. If they got the fourth, I've got five and six ways to evolve this practice if the standard is really high. Or I can realize, actually, I might need to take it down a little bit. I need, might need to, a regression in the practice rather than a progression technically, tactically, physically. So I think we have to understand that it's the same way in terms of the drip feeding those collaborative opportunities to practice social confidence, 
and and be creative with uh, with the ways that they do that um and if it's too much come back one if they can't take the full team debrief at the end of the game then maybe just ask them to stand up for 30 seconds and give give uh, uh, their own summary and then the coach might be able to step in again and ask i always think that it takes as much skill as a coach to ask the right questions at the right time in the right way as it does to know all the answers correct um, yeah definitely yeah. you know the power of the right question is a it's a it's a such a strong form of coaching to to understand to think about framing the question to, t- to test learning if you ask the right type of question the right way at the right time with the right person man that can be one of the greatest coaching tools in in the toolkit um so the power of questions to glue that experience together and sometimes they might not they may not know the answers and that's great because then other teammates might come in and say hey listen well maybe it could be this it could be that it's an exploration and the, the coach's response to those sort, sort of scenarios should must never be you're wrong no and 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 close that 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 loop that open loop of communication down because that you might as well not do that exercise at all if that's going to be your response or you know it might be does anyone have anything else to add on that and 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 it might not be the right answer you know in your head you're thinking they haven't got it they don't know the answers what am i going to do i need to tell them right now no no you don't it's it's a sign of they're showing you how much they've learned so internally i can say okay they haven't quite got it yet so maybe i need to revisit that in practice Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that, Johnny. Sarah, well done. That's great stuff. Okay, right, guys, listen, see you Monday, whatever. It's never about shutting them down because if you shut them down, they'll never share again. Yeah. My, my experience has been some of the best training sessions are the, are the messiest ones, the ones that are not, they're messy, right? And you come through, you come home, you're almost exhausted as, as a coach, right? And the players are probably exhausted as well, but it's a, it's a good process, I think, because the game is chaotic. Right. So I think in retrospect, this, the training session should be the training environment should be chaotic also, because how else can you get players used to that kind of environment on a Saturday? We have to go out and deal with anything can yeah. happen. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's some criticism right now, Tom, for the younger generation regarding leadership skills or maybe lack of uh, also some criticism regarding today's generation doesn't have necessarily grit or um, resilient skills. Do you sort of see that at your level you're working at, or is it more of a matter of us not understanding today's generation a little bit, and maybe they have those kind of uh, traits in different ways, and maybe they kind of demonstrate them in different ways? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of research, hasn't there, about um, the power of grit, resilience, and a lot of research in social science, psychology, child education, development papers. It's they're really all sort of pointing towards the this you know correlating conclusion which is that that those levels of resilience and grit determination are are dissipating those leadership skills are dissipating in a in a modern day generation um and i don't blame the children at all uh, i think we have to mu- think much bigger than that um you know it's like uh uh <sighs> I read this wonderful book by Fiona Harold um, many years ago, and she said that many people think that today's society aren't as strong as the wartime society who had to face tremendous challenge and respond to unprecedented levels of threat. And they were the most resilient of all. She said that when you speak to people who have lived through those wartime experiences, they often say things like, it's not the same as back in my day they uh no one really fully understands no one has the the character that we had back then uh you know and but later in the chapter she talks about she doesn't fully believe that she believes that as human beings um we are extraordinary and extraordinary times require extraordinary character and and if such circumstances require we have the character in today's society to respond to extraordinary circumstances, the same as when we did during those wartime experiences. Right. I also believe that's true. I believe that we are 
we have an extraordinary capacity to respond to circumstances, to learn, to adapt, to evolve, to grow. I think it's much more a question of the environments that we create, the cultures that we create, both in our homes as parents. Do we let our children go on those devices, on the iPads, on the iPhones, plug into YouTube, play on the PlayStation, play the Xbox, whatever on a screen because it's easy? Or do we make sure that simple things like sitting around the dinner table as a family, discussing the day, speaking about the challenges, asking what went well, family meetings, walking the dog together, those social interactions that take us away from those isolated instant gratification via technology. It's a big problem in society. And as we, you know, I mean, we're on a phone right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm on the phone right now. We're on the screen, right? It has uh, some uses. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to a degree, it's a big part of modern society, modern day technology. But I think we, we're able to, and this is what I mean about, it sounds, our discussion about collaboration and social confidence and creating cultures of collaboration and coaching sounds very airy fairy doesn't it it could sound very wishy-washy very soft but actually those moments are awkward sometimes they're messy sometimes they're uncomfortable sometimes I don't really know what to say sometimes I don't want everybody to be watching me at the same the spotlights on me but that skill you know it is a skill it's right. a skill it takes practice to improve right. to emotionally to deal with that sort of situation and um you know I might disagree with one of my teammates that's yeah. fantastic and if yeah. we can disagree yeah. together in that moment and still respect and love each other and see the bigger picture and actually understand that the world doesn't always agree that's okay but exactly. it's that, that doesn't change my opinion of you as a person you know and so and so i think what i'm trying to say ian is um as teachers, as coaches, as practitioners, as caregivers, as parents, we have to find ways to, um, a <laughs> funny story, my son started a paper round not so long ago. Right. And um, the first day I went with him, did the round, second day I was you know, on the bike, third day we walked, fourth day he did it by himself. And uh, it was raining and he didn't take a wet jacket yeah and you know he got wet very wet the papers got <laughs> wet it was a disaster you know the, the paper shop rang up and said what happened to the papers then <laughs> oh no <laughs> so so but the thing is you know i we i didn't i refused the urge to step in and rescue him you, and that's you know he got wet so what it's rain but now right. next time you learn take a rain jacket what exactly. else well the papers got wet well how can you stop that next time it's on you it's your job it's your responsibility yeah, uh, you know, these we have to stop ourselves from being snowplow parents, helicopter parents, going in and rescuing our children at the nearest opportunity. We have to be much better at that. Um, yeah. Allowing micro failures, micro setbacks, micro challenges throughout the day, giving responsibility, healthy responsibility, and and the consequences are if I don't do my homework tonight, my teacher is going to you know speak to me in the morning and you're going to have to deal with that not me i don't own that as a parent you own that so we can teach our children responsibility at a younger age um and you know go to parents evening for example and a lot of the parents <laughs> you know, it's so funny because what do you mean my child's got a d not an a you know right. um you know it's your fault teacher no 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 yeah. uh, no 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 i want to know did you know did you know about the homework? Yes or no? Yes, I knew about the homework. Why didn't you do it? Because this isn't now a D might be the best grade that that child has, right? To, to right, get. exactly. So, yeah. so well done and congratulations. It's not about the outcome. I'm really talking about did you commit to the process? Did you turn up to training? Did right. you do what you said you were going to do? And I think we can teach our children these things a lot. Children become very aware of these skills very early on. You know, they, they, they get very good at, if you want, they can take the path of least resistance even. And if we're really honest, as adults, we do that sometimes. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't really want to go to the gym tonight. <laughs> a very long day. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. so anyway, but um, I think we can, we can, we think, if we can think about it as a bigger picture, then our children will show us 
their extraordinary capacity to be resilient if we right. provide the right environment and the right teaching early on. Yeah, excellent answer. Really well done. Excellent, good. Uh, good quick question for you. Um, one of the first times, first times I came across you was actually in a TED Talk. You were talking about creativity with young people. Um, any ideas how a person themselves can take upon themselves to be more creative? Uh, any things that they can do themselves in, in terms of uh, expanding that part of their, their makeup, their DNA, uh, as opposed to looking to other people to help them with that? Oh, yeah. I, you know, I love, I love that question. Um, uh, very often we, um, you know, as adults, we become more, uh, generally we become more fixed, more rigid in the way that we see the world. And the older we get, the more we, um, it's confirmation bias in psychology, right? Yeah. It can be in political views. It can be views about sport. It can be views about, um, you know, anything in life. We just, as adults, we become more convinced of our own views. Yeah. <laughs> and we find evidence that, that supports our own opinion. <laughs> That's it all time on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know? So one of the things that I love to do is encourage people to find alternative views, a diversity of thinking, a different way of seeing the world. It doesn't mean that you have to agree and rapidly and radically change things about yourself that you once believed and are now not. Just the ability to consider other perspectives, other viewpoints, other ways of seeing the world. You know, in, for example, in, in, in sport, in football, in soccer, it can be, okay, I'm a coach that, that really has a strong belief in a 3-5-2. And I'm certain about it. It's the only way that my team's going to play. It's the only way my team's going to have success, right? right? I'll say to that coach, that's wonderful. That's fantastic. But I want you to go and speak to Dan who is a huge advocate of 442 and listen to what he says about exposing your 352 and the weaknesses that it has yeah what do you mean the weaknesses of a 352 there aren't any weaknesses of are you mad you know so yeah <laughs> so we can as coaches we can get creative by um, by being open minded enough to consider different perspectives creativity is a wonderful it really is um Oh, it's the birthplace of great moments, really. The more creative we can be. Uh, I think one of the great things about what we did used to do in academy is um, we would give the children, we would give the players 15 minutes at the start of practices on a certain night, maybe a Thursday night, position-specific skills, uh, 15 minutes to design your own practice. You know, right. go, and, go, and design, go and design anything you want, anything you want. And I'm not even going to tell you what it is that you need to do. Here are the cones. You, you can use cones. You might not use cones. Yeah. There's goals available. There's some balls. There's some tennis balls. There's not even footballs. There could be someone else. Go and play. Go and enjoy it. Go and, uh, you know, and often we'd look across and you know what? They teach us as coaches some different drills that we never even thought of that improved our practice. Right. But of course, you know, I guess the prerequisite to creativity is um, a mindset that is open, open to change, open to seeing the world differently. Um, I think it's a fundamental skill as a human being to, uh, you know, it's like um, the, I read a wonderful um, quote the other day. The mind is like a parachute. It, it works properly when it's open. Oh, very good. Yeah, very good. That's excellent. Yeah, very good. Very good. Yeah. Um, any thoughts on feedback and how to give it as coaches? Um, part of my challenge a little bit last couple of years has been I'm actually getting away from giving a numeric number besides feedback. Cause what I find myself is I, I find that players tend to go towards that numeric number versus review the comments I've made. And I actually got an, a good idea from a guy called Dave Alred. I'm not sure that he's a very famous coach with um, does one, a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching with um, uh, American football, uh, sorry, Australian football players. And he was saying, just start off and give everybody a 10 and challenge the players to get to 11 or 12. So I've been starting to do that in my sessions and say, okay, everyone's starting at a 10 today. Can you get yourself to 11 and 12 zone, right? So as opposed to sort of hand out numbers, which people look at a number and say, it's out of 10, their heads, I'm at seven. And they kind of want the eight or nine versus think about how can I improve and get to a higher number? Any thoughts about the best way to give that kind of feedback and whether we should be giving numeric feedback whether it's a, a, a situation where maybe you avoid that so often, maybe we do our work on the field on a daily basis 
and encourage discussion like you mentioned tonight, as opposed to give a formal evaluation. Yeah, uh, I think um, numbers can be useful because they give us a framework for uh, a loose framework, a scaffolding for understanding where perceptions are at. But I think um, far too often, I would agree with Dave, older, uh, we get caught up in the number and it blinds us actually to the to the, the true learning behind the, the number. So I think um, it goes really, it goes back to understanding very specifically what we are working on individually with that player. So for example, if I have a fullback and part of my learning and development program is I'm working on my capacity to overlap the wide man in the final third and get crosses in. For example, I'm just making this up. Right. Okay. Then instead of saying, where do you think you, how do you, would you rate yourself out of 10? Well, two. Okay. Well, uh, I'd give you a four, but what does that really mean? What does that mean? So I would say, instead of going to the outcome, the numerical, can we think more in terms of it's goal orientation, uh, Ian. So the process and the performance goals rather than just the outcome. So in training, we worked on, we worked on overlaps, taking two touches and the whipped cross to the back post. Okay. I'm just making it up. Yeah. Okay. That was part of our process. That's a process goal. How many times did we do that in the game? Maybe we did it three times. Okay, great. There's going to be a reason for that. How did you feel? What were you thinking in those moments when you overlapped in the final third? Well, that question is, a, for me, a far higher order question. It's a transformational question because we gain insight into the world that the player is experiencing on the pitch rather than reducing it down to a number. Let's say the player got there three times and kicked it out of play three times and he's given himself a two. Right. But actually, the movement to get into the position, the recognition to overlap, the physicality, the decision to go, the confidence and self-belief to drive past the wide man to get into the final third, magnificent part of the process. Yeah. So 80% of that move has been a success. Right. So the nine out of 10. Yeah. Well, now I'm feeling completely different about that outcome because I thought I was just being measured on whether I landed it straight on the center forward's head at the back post to an inch of the run. No, actually no, because we've been working on the bigger picture. Right. So immediately you start to remove the building bricks that I'm carrying the sack of potatoes on my back. You know, I've been yeah. beating myself up, giving myself a two because all three crosses went out of play. But then a nice question to ask is, okay, so what happened there then? So what, do you, what could we do to improve that together? What is it about that final part that might need to be just tweaked slightly? Because the rest of it's magnificent. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? So we, again, we change the story. So <laughs> numbers can be useful, but certainly um, it's, it's, a, it, it's just a starter. Yeah. So maybe it's worth having discussions about intention. We asked that player what your intention was when you started making your run. What was your intention? And what was what was the result of that? Um, what did that create? Did it create space? Did you receive the pass? Did you were you able to dribble? Were you able to have an intention to go past somebody? Or are you more confident less confident doing that and more able to go and pass up to somebody else? I guess it's about intention a little bit as well regarding understanding what your thought process was and then maybe having a look at that as opposed, like you said, sort of saying what, what was the final outcome of that. Most definitely. Yeah, yeah. I was actually over in a, a very interesting academy uh, a few years ago over in Cape Verona, a very small club in Italy. And a lot of their ball mastery work, I, I've spent a lot of my time um, teaching ball mastery work. I've always done the ground. But back then, they actually were doing a lot of stuff in the air. And it was very complex work, technically, for players. And they had this process in the academy. We're going to set trust for seven years, for example, which I thought was a great concept. We're going to try it. We're going to let a whole generation of players come through it. We're going to evaluate and see whether it's actually, you know, being a game changer, changed our, changed our performance levels. What I find was I was quite intrigued by the players probably failed on average 70% of the time. I was mm. amazed at watching these players all the way from U9 all the way up to the in fact U19. And the players were, were, were comfortable with that. They were fine with it. It wasn't an issue. And what I find was, observing a little bit more, was 
the staff were standing back, letting the players make those mistakes. And there wasn't any pressure or outside pressure on them to perform all the time and get it right all the time. And in most cases, the players were making adjustments themselves. But when they could, and like the younger players, the, the coach then would come in and maybe provide a, a helping hand a little bit and step back out again. So I've saw what was possible with that, um, but I don't see it happen very often uh, in, uh, in club academies, for example. And kind of mm. wonder what your, your take on that. Have you saw that kind of concept? Have you think that's possible? I think that's a, that's the kind of direction we have to go in. Uh, uh, for me, I wholeheartedly believe in that philosophy that you observed. One of the questions I ask coaches is, who are you there for? Who is this, what is the session for? And how do you measure success of your session? There's too many coaches here in England still in academies that I see anyway. They, are, they just want their session to run well. They just want it to flow because a flowing session makes the coach look good. A flowing session, if the academy manager might come walking past, makes it look like the coach knows what they're doing. Right. Uh, and the more it flows, the more it, the patterns look pretty, the more the closed skills are great, then that's okay. And that makes me look good as a coach. Right. So what you're actually telling me is that you're there for yourself, not the needs of the players. Right. And uh, that's a great question to ask ourselves constantly as coaches. Is this session that I've designed tonight for the needs of the players? And am I myself comfortable if it gets messy and breaks down? Am I comfortable with how that looks? Can I respond to my superiors who will say to me, this looks messy. It's a poor session. Well, actually, boss, it's not a poor session. You're watching learning in action. Right. Now, many of for many of the coaches listening to that would, may think, my goodness, I don't know if I could say that to my boss. I mean, he wants me to get the players active and moving. And yes, there is a place for that. But fundamentally, we must ask ourselves the question, do we provide an environment for the players to learn through failure and setbacks? The culture that you've described there is a culture that's strong enough and a collective enough to produce a player that's capable of responding to their own setbacks. But also, the key point in that story was the coach is not just passive. He's not just gone on holiday and let the players crack on. He's observant. He understands that the players might need him still to step in. Right. And he's ready if that need is there. But the yeah. key thing is, it's not a case of, um, you know, there are coaches who have, out of an hour session, sometimes I've seen, I've seen the, the coach talk for 40 minutes out of an hour. Yeah. Well, who are you there for? Yeah. You like the sound of your own voice too much. Get the ball moving. Let yeah. them figure it out. Resist the urge to intervene all the time you know and that's a good way to think about it as a coach how often do i step in and intervene as a coach how often how many opportunities do i resist the urge to step in and let them see if they can figure it out right because if we if the structure of and the demand of the practice is good enough then the the demand of the practice should allow them the time and space to cognitively think through the challenge, overcome it, and solve the problem. So, you know, overloads, for example, simple example, 3v6. In a possession practice, you know, the six have got it, but they lose the ball. But there's only three of them, so I'm going to step in yeah. and coach, coach the six. No, let, allow it to go for a little bit. See what happens. See if they can figure out the spaces. Where are the spaces? who recognize the spaces, you know, and we're back to our observation skills, aren't we? As, yeah. as coaches, that's so important. Yeah. I think part of that being, being, like you mentioned, uh, involving your parents as well. I remember when Wolves went ahead and did the, the session I told you about where the players were delivering the session themselves, they actually went to the parents ahead of time and described to the parents what the, what the, what the purpose of that was, as opposed to sort of turn one night and the parents saying, why is the coach doing a job? So I think it's part of it. Obviously, communication amongst the, everyone in terms of 
players understand what, what's required, what we're trying to achieve with this. The coaches obviously understanding it as well, but more importantly to the parents as well, because they can obviously support that work of the coach um, and obviously encourage the player themselves to step up a little bit as well. But everyone knows what the outcome is, what we're trying to achieve with this, as opposed to sort of say, let's go ahead and just do this. I mean, that's, that's a, maybe a recipe for disaster as well. Would that be fair? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point, isn't it? It's uh, culture is about everyone. And ultimately, you know, some parents and coaches may have different beliefs, but if a leader, you really believe in the culture of allowing the players to think and giving them space and time to overcome and set practices up, then I really think we have to um, be good communicators at, at defining the reason and purpose behind that right. um, and, and following up regularly, increase communication uh, and decrease negatives. And, that, and I think the more collective we can be in understanding why we do things, because ultimately there are always going to be people that wonder why. Why do we do that that way? What's the purpose of that? What's, what's the reason? So, uh, you know, parent education workshops, opportunities to speak to the coaches, allowing them to understand what the philosophy is of the reason why we do certain things. Then, then they have the opportunity to, uh, in that car journey home, it becomes a collaborative discussion. Oh, right. I really enjoyed what I saw there. The coach, coach Dave was telling me about why you did that. That's wonderful. How did it feel? Instead of, you know, oh, you lost two 0 by the way. Did you know that you lost two? You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yeah, it's a different mindset. It's a completely different mindset, definitely. Um, Tom, I really appreciate the time. It flew by. I, I, I realized you take up your, your time today. Thank you so much for, for sending the note today and jumping on the call. I want to have you uh, talk a little bit before you go about your upcoming event and the future coach. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed the, the book and thoroughly enjoyed the course I took right at the beginning of the first lockdown, going back a couple of years now. But it helped me reflect a lot uh, as a coach. I, the main purpose and the main advantage I got out of the, the work was it allowed me to sort of stop for a second and pause and ask myself the question why I was doing certain things. And I've been, you know, coaching for about 20 years. And I think it's a, a very valid process for coaches to do on a periodic basis because we only get caught up in our day-to-day -day lives and, and busy sessions and week one goes to week two and, and week two to month four, et cetera. The season's over. We have summer holidays. We're back at it again. We can kind of get in this, this wheel, can't we? Where I think it's important maybe uh, to set aside some time during our, our normal day to sort of sit back and go, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And how am I helping? Would that be fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And we come full circle, don't we? Yeah. About that process of self-awareness as a coach, thinking about why we do what we do, the way we do it. One of the questions in the future coach course that you took is, um, you know, the, the question about who was our, who was our greatest coaches? Why were they our greatest coaches? What impact did they have on us? What was it about what they did or said or who they were that I really connected to? And, you know, a great question we can ask ourselves as coaches is, um, why do I coach? Uh, second question, why do I coach the way I coach? Right. Third question, and you'll remember this, how would it feel to be coached by me? Yeah. Which is so very yeah, it's a tough question. A tough question to ask yourself. It really is. And I struggled with it when I first had the question. And yeah, it, it, really, it really tests you a little bit to understand um, how your players might feel going through a session with you. Uh, and obviously, even, even just general interaction beyond the session, before the session, during the session, obviously after the session as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's really what we're going to be doing. We're going to be following up with those um, questions and those experiences and opportunity to reflect. The Future Coach uh, virtual seminar takes place on uh, Thursday, the 24th of February, just uh, yeah. over three weeks time. And I'll be joined by the England, the current England under 21 head coach, Lee Carsley. Um, ex-Everton captain, Premier League player of 17 years, uh, along with uh, also Mike Scott, who is now currently head of uh, coach uh, development at Wolverhampton Wanderers uh, Football Club in the Premier League. 
And then as a special VIP guest, we're going to be joined by senior international, uh, Irish international, Mr. Conor Hurahan, who is, of course, central midfielder at Aston Villa, currently on loan in the championship to Sheffield United. And he's going to be speaking about his experiences of some of the best coaches that he's worked with and traits that they've possessed over the years to get the very best out of him. So it's a jam-packed evening. I'll be presenting to kick it off at the start. It's open uh, to anyone to Tickets are available online. I think uh, whilst obviously spaces last, there's 100 spaces, but if anyone is interested in booking themselves onto that course, it takes place at um, 6 o'clock at night GMT. um, And uh, you can visit TomBatesCoaching.com for the ticket options or you can follow the socials and follow the links on Twitter and Instagram for more information. Great stuff, Tom. Excellent. Enjoy talking today. Uh, great, Great to catch up again. As always, stay safe and we'll be in touch soon. Thanks, Tom. Thank you very much, Ian. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Bye now.